Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Hey everyone, welcome to episode seven of Education Suspended. I am one of the co-hosts, Jessica Pfeiffer. We're excited to have you here. Today we talked to a good friend of mine, Dr. Alicia Frandina, who is the executive director of the Downtown Denver Expeditionary School. I've had the honor of working with her and her amazing team for the last three years as a consultant, and they're really doing good work. There's a lot of good stuff in this episode, um, but honestly, there were, there were two big things that I just you know, I just really took away after our conversation with her. The first one is that she brings up this theme of intentionality and how that can really be the through line in all we do and all the tiers and all of our interventions. And I really like that about just being prescriptive about what, what are we doing, but more importantly, why are we doing the what we're doing? And then she also makes this amazing statement about culture. And she says, you know, the adult culture the culture that we provide for our educators, for our teachers, that has to change and that has to shift for the culture to change around our students. So like I said, there's a lot of good stuff in this episode. We're such an honor to talk with her. Um, so sit back, enjoy, and welcome to Education Suspended with Dr. Alicia Frandina. Yeah, we're, all, we're, we're glad to have you here. I think, you know, we always like to start of just, you tell us about yourself, kind of how did you get into education? How did you get to where you are? You can include you know, part of you being a student, all right? What was that journey like for you? But kind of however you want to want to introduce yourself, dream big. Okay, well, um, my name's Leisha Frandina and my journey becoming um, the executive director of the Downtown Denver Expeditionary School and in education um, definitely wasn't a straight line. I um, was a uh, you know, I went to graduate school to be a professor of communication studies, uh, particularly focusing on space and place and how spaces and places um, inform our communication, interact with our communication, uh, create barriers for our communication. And it, at the time, it was somewhat of a, a fringe of the communication studies and persuasion to actually look at physical space and and say, well, what is this doing? What is it, what is it doing when we go into um, a Starbucks and interact in a Starbucks environment and the ways we do with the physicality of the, um, um, the, the environment and the music that's playing and um, the type of culture that is trying to be created there. And then I went on and really took that into studying um, the impact of September 11th. I was living in New York City at the time for my dissertation and really looking at how the conversations around what we should rebuild, um, what we should, how we should memorialize, what are the temporary commemorations going on, what are the uh, temporary like resistant movements that were going on post 9-11, um, and what were they, what were those physical spaces communicating about trauma, which is funny, like when I say this now, and we'll connect to this later, um, your, your career kind of starts interacting in ways you never thought would happen. Um, but really what was, how do we commemorate trauma? And what what does absence of 
um, physical space and people mean. Uh, so, so should we rebuild um, that space? Should we um, have space for contemplation and reflection? Should we um, rebuild in a very um, nationalistic, patriotic way? All those things came into play on how we should interact with this trauma. And I was specifically invested in temporary memorials um, by the people um, that were creating pretty like bodily representations of what happened that day. Um, so at the same time, I was also going through quite a bit of um, secondary trauma myself, um, because I was studying deeply um, the bodies of 9-11 and their fall mm. from the towers. Um, and then I had a lot of personal connection to that because um, my, my grandfather was the um, lead construction foreman on building the World Trade Center. And my uncle was one of the major steelmen um, on the on the World Trade Center. So my family, all all residing in the Bronx, had a very deeply deep connection. I I would always say my parent my my family built the World Trade Center site, and I deeply believe that growing up. Um, and so when they fell, my um, family had a really visceral reaction to it, and then I kept studying it for several years. And so, you know, that's a long-winded way to say that, that that's what my dissertation was on. That was my focus. And then I realized I wasn't going to seek tenure track as a professor. And I kept teaching um, at the community college level and for the University of Maryland classes around persuasion and rhetoric and how we interact with spaces and the media and our political discourse. I, and I moved to downtown Denver and I had my second kid. I have four children now and we are living right down on the six. 16th Street Mall. And for a long time, about 30 years, there was this um, intention to have uh, a elementary and a middle school in the downtown city core. It's, it's somewhat unusual for a thriving city center not to have an education space for K-12. And in over 100 years, there hasn't been an elementary school downtown. So, you know, I distinctly remember going to the first meeting, planning meeting and saying like to my partner, um, Michael, like, do not raise your hand. We're overextended. We just had another kid. I promised to take six months off after my dissertation and this crazy move we moved with a six-week-old and the minute they started talking like I I raised my hand to volunteer to help um, with the founding charter and particularly with the communication and marketing around the school and um you know, I think I'm a first generation college graduate as well. And so my interaction with education space, I had a very positive interaction, um, K to 12. Um, I grew up in a really small town in uh, called Green Mountain Falls, Colorado, in um, kind of the southern area of Colorado by Manitou Springs. And like I always had to navigate and advocate for myself quite a bit um, and learn the ropes a lot. Like I, I chose a college just by looking in a book and checking off like where I could get the financial aid from and then and, and had no idea, never visited colleges, never did those kind of things. So I had this interesting relationship with education as a space as well and figuring out how to advocate in those spaces. I, I was really interested um, living on the 16th Street Mall. We lived in a condo under there, uh, over there with two boys. Um, a, it was very different than New York City. Like there weren't a lot of young families living downtown and um, there weren't that many, yeah, there weren't that many people living in the downtown city core. And in, and in New York, where I had just previously resided, it was a big deal. Um, and a lot of people lived in, in, in my neighborhood and there was a local school and um, we all, you know, went, you know, 
convened in these public spaces. So I was really interested in this project. And um, I think what what we found is, you know, we opened in 2013 and we are a K-5 elementary school. We knew like three major components of our mission and vision. The first was that we really wanted the city to be the campus and we wanted our students to um, interact deeply with their environment. The second was uh, Denver is highly, highly segregated um, in schools. And we knew we wanted to be an integrated school, racially and economically integrated school. And the third piece was we needed to find the vehicle, the curriculum that was going to allow us to do that. And and very early on, um, before opening, um, we partnered with EL Education, which was formerly known as Expeditionary Learning. as that vehicle of curriculum that could really allow us to have student-centered, um, deeply connected to community curriculum that that teachers could have a strong sense of um, ownership. It wasn't like, you know, you don't get a book of EL education curriculum and read each day to the students that curriculum, but it really embeds social studies, science, um, literacy, and and writing into these long-term case studies called expeditions. Um, that the student can explore. So those were like our three really deep pieces. And the expedition piece continues to be like where you really get at that city is the campus. So, um, you know, our, uh, our second grade is a good example, they would study in, in, in a more traditional school, you would in a public school, you would study um, the history of your of your city with all the cursory events that have happened over the modern time. Um, what EL education does is ask you to go really deeply into one area and trust that if you keep if you do things like that that keep students really invested and engaged in their learning, especially now in the modern world, they can go off. And, and find out about other events and, right. and they'll be engaged in a way deeply. Right. So we, you know, so, so second grade studies, the history of transportation solely in Denver, and they will take a tour of a area campus and they'll find out how the flood and the fires impacted the grid system being made and how the streetcar came into being and then what the constraints of the streetcar were. And they'll take walking tours of that area. Um, when we first started this expedition, the light rail was just starting to go to the um, airport and they would they would ride it they would talk to communities they they talk about like what were the benefits of this what were the cons they started seeing like communities that um, the light rail went through were having intense noise pollution they also tended to be communities that were lower income uh, and those communities couldn't get on the light rail right it was not affordable for them to get on the light rail so we kept kind of toting as a downtown Denver community, like, oh, the light rail's here. You can take the light rail to our school now. And they couldn't because a family of four, it was like half their transportation budget would be going to this. And so then the students as early as second grade created public presentations in Union Station um, with high quality work, high quality renditions and opinion pieces about transportation in downtown Denver and these modes of transportation, and then advocated for lower income fare passes. We then joined a city group. And then eventually within about four years, um, RTD reduced the cost of family passes, um, kids under 12 in about a 70% reduction. So when it all comes together, like you really see 
um, high public presentations of student work and students advocating outside of the school and like deep, deep partnerships with other communities and other organizations that lead to change in the city. Um, And I think a lot of times people think that can only happen at the middle and high school level. And what we see is that, you know, we, it starts with people saying like, Oh, have your kids speak. They're so cute. And then they hear them speak and they hear them advocate for their communities and, and it impacts real change. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think we've been working what together about three years, two years. I don't know. It feels like three years, I think. Three years. And that has always been the, one of the major things that has stood out about your school is just the connection to community. And, but you, you said this, right? Not just the connection, but like kind of how you're driving learning, right? It's very specific. And you have these little kids actually invested, right? When I'm going around and doing observations with your teachers, like, yes, these first graders, second graders, third graders are like really psyched about what they're learning about. And it's, I feel like it's not always the norm. So I don't know. It's really cool to see that piece. Yeah. 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 It's definitely, um, you know, I always say if we do nothing, if we can't do anything else, we definitely see evidence that our students leave the school, like being really big advocates um, outwardly for themselves, but also being able to like, just be really strong in public speaking. You can pick out, even in other EL schools, you they tend to go on to so many different programs. They don't stay in the EL education world often, but you can like pick out that kid usually in a, in a school because it's, it's like, a, you know, it's a big confidence builder to engage in public speaking from, from a very young age, for sure. Right. I really love the breakdown of si- the silos of social studies, language arts, math, uh, you know, sort of those core subjects, how they, they weave all those together into this am I right in saying into this expedition? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like we, I mean, right. We know this and we've known this for forever, but like learning doesn't happen in silos and the way to connect students with actually caring about things is to show like how it really works in the world and how it impacts their community. And, and we continue to try and refine this to show like, what is the local impact, right? We, we were challenged in fourth grade by taking on climate change and not knowing exactly how to really localize that. Like we had started working with some world um, global partnership and then really started to look at like, whoa, there's a deep impact, particularly with our low income communities around the tree canopy in downtown Denver and who gets trees and who doesn't. And a tree canopy is such a, um, such a protector against pollution and further um, uh, climate change. And, 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 and those kind of things started to really um, focus that work. And I mean, I think it was maybe more less pronounced for our school starting off and even in EL education and becoming more pronounced in both of our organizations is there's always a social justice bent. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always an examination and there has to be, if you're, if you're a community school, like there has to be an examination of like, 
where the power and the privileges and how identities are getting formed. And I think that's, you know, the big thing and, and, and eventually then leads us to Jessica here is like, we knew we wanted to be diverse and we have been able to kind of fight an uphill battle in our area. I mean, we're in the central business district. It's one of the most affluent spaces and whitest spaces in our city. Mm-hmm. And like we, we have a ton of surrounding communities that are interested in social justice, interested in deeply engaged curriculum. Um, we have an outdoor ed program that gets our students outside, um, outside of the city into, into nature. And so we knew that. And so we, we've been successfully growing. We're 40% of our, our population, our families of color, um, leading us to be the only integrated elementary school in our whole area, one of the few in our entire district. Um, And like, that's not enough. Like we had to start looking at what does inclusion look like? And, and that's, that's that culturally responsive and community responsive piece that we're still, we have a lot of work to do and we're still really growing in that area. But like, what does it look like to be inclusive as far as our behavior vision? What does it look like to be inclusive as far as um, um, in our expeditions, who we're going to as our experts, who, what kind of texts we're using, um, what we're, what we're teaching from what narrative in the past. And so that's like in the last, I would say four years, that's where we've been deeply examining our work. Um, so can I, that's where, what brought us to Jessica. Is that, are we okay yeah. to go into that? Yeah. Can, can I ask a question about, you know, yeah. it's interesting. Uh, like you said, kind of, yes, I know where you're located. And so you did a good job of describing it, but what have been some of the challenges, right, from the integration inclusion perspective for, for maybe more of the, of the white families? Have you had any pushback? Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of challenges is like there was never a school downtown. So there was a lot of fear across the board um, from folks about having a school downtown. We're in a multi-use building. We have 13 floors. There's an alternative high school in our school. There's um, a technical college in our school. And then there's all the administration um, from Denver Public Schools, which is also a unique relationship because we're a charter school um, in the administration building for Denver Public Schools. So um, we had to temporarily open in a new site that was like a very traditional feeling of a school. Huge yard, big auditorium, beautiful library. So that made it even worse because then we transferred to our new location when it was ready mid-year, like in March. I had just given birth. I had just gone on leave. And then we, we literally marched all the way from Sunnyside with all our kids, Little Man Ice Cream, all these communities opened up and served us along the way and moved all the way down into 1860, which is right in that central business district. So, you know, there's a lot of fear just of, of doing this. How will kids walk through the city? Um, what, how, you know, will, there, will they encounter um, dangerous situations? A huge concern from families about like us interacting with um communities experiencing homelessness in our, in our area. And what would that look like? Um, So yeah, like a lot of fear. And I think, you know, we can talk a little bit about this as we talk through the work with Jessica. We also weren't, when I reflect on it, we weren't strong about talking and being outright about our vision at the time. And part of that was we didn't know like where we were going and this was a startup, right? And so um, I think our biggest kind of um, 
challenge in our communities having different visions really happened as we started responding to a change in our community and um, really starting to know what kind of vision we wanted to have for behavior in our school um, that didn't necessarily, we weren't great at it yet. So there's definitely some accountability on our part, but there was definitely um, um, families who felt like, yeah, they did not sign up for this. They did not sign up for this type of work at a school. and, and now I know um, we're in enrollment season for next year. Like I am just very clear. <laughs> um, our, our, our marketing is very clear that we take on social justice issues, that we, keep, we care deeply about behavior being a journey and a long-term investment in mm-hmm. students, um, that we serve a large group of students that have neurodiversity in their needs. <laughs> and so that I think, you know, I'm starting to see that help because we're a choice school. So you can choose to go to our school or you could choose not to. And being forthright about what we are has has helped draw the people who are interested in that. I love it. I love it. Um, Grainer, do you have any questions though? I mean... No, I'm just rocking along. I I, I just stole some words. Uh, Behavior is a journey. Thank you. I... um... (laughs) I missed the second part of that. I was writing down so fast and I wanted to keep listening at the same time, but thank you for sharing that. Um, I think what a great perspective and a a cool way of saying it. Uh, I I think that's that's what's so missing in in so many schools right now is understanding behavior as a journey. And that I I know that dovetails into the work you do with Jessica. So I'll, I'll just let I'll just be silent and listen, but um, thank you for that expression. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you also said, you know, behavior is a journey, but I think what's, what's really cool is that it, when, when I'm listening to you, right. And I'm listening about your all's goals of how you kind of want to change and impact education in a really positive way. Not only are you seeing the students' behaviors change in their own journey, but for all sakes and purposes, they're also watching you in a very parallel process, right? The whole system around them is also in its own journey. So that's really cool kind of how you have that parallel two things happening at the same time. It's, it's just, yeah, sounds pretty cool. Right before I think we started working with Jessica, um, and we know this about change, like we were growing very uncomfortable. Um, and that's when change happens, right? And that's why you try and continue to find opportunities to make yourself uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and we're go- growing uncomfortable for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is our community was changing quite a bit. So uh, we had two schools close in, in elementary schools in our district, and we prioritize those students at our school. Um, we know the reason people don't ever want to close schools is it's, it's deeply traumatic, right? Um, schools are usually told that they'll be closing in December. And then students and staff have to fulfill the whole year, the rest of the year. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes those those spaces turn a little more chaotic. There's a little bit of a, just an atmosphere of letting go. And, 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 and so students have usually had not an ideal experience for, for a good amount of time. And so we were seeing different students um, 
who might have had this like situational trauma around schools closing and some some pretty deep abandonment issues around that. Um, we were doing decent work with neurodiversity. And so we were attracting families that had um, different needs uh, to our school as well. We were having some uncomfortable conversations as we were talking about with parents who were, who were saying like, I'm here for EL education. Is this school becoming um, something just for behavior or um, just about this type of a student? Um, so we're having a lot of uncomfortable discussions and embedded in our curriculum is deeply social emotional ties. Like we, we engage in crew every day and crew is like a distinct block to practice social emotional, that social emotional journey, we say in simplicity, so then you can take it out into complexity. So they would in crew, they would be working on on something and then take it throughout the day and then hopefully home. And I'll, I'll give an example of that later. But we are also grading character. So like, that's my fifth graders just taught me to say cringy all the time, like they say cringy for everything now. <laughs> um, sometimes it just doesn't make sense. And they're doing it. But that's like, definitely like something that just like I deeply cringe about now. Um, and when you're a school trying to do something different in the education system that's really set, you constantly are trying to find accountability measures that you can show of what you're doing because yeah. you're constantly only judged by your academic data. And when you're trying to do quite a few things, that might not always be in the blue range, right? Or in the 99% range. Um, and so we were, the reason we were grading character was to show like a, a data point for this work. And once we started having conversations, and this was a great community moment because it was um, deep conversations with our families, our teachers, and our staff and saying like, nobody felt good about this. Um, you know, you can't, if we talk about behavior and our social emotional life as a journey, like you don't reach an end goal of tenacity by the end of fourth grade, you don't get a four on tenacity. Um, <laughs> it's, it's so situational to what's happening. You know, we would, we had a mom who was deeply, deeply afraid of snakes. And there was a snake in the in the window of one of our classrooms, Jessica knows that it's still there in, in Julia V's classroom. And we were making assumptions that this parent never would come into the classroom, never would participate. She's not engaged, right? We didn't even know about her journey and like the courage it showed for her to walk in our building and walk past that. And so, you know, all these experiences started really, we were reflecting on, wow, like how can we grade this? So we had already started redesigning kind of this crew block, right? So that like, what does it look like to teach social emotional learning every day? And I, I always thought that was kind of normal. And then, you know, we've done a lot of state conferences and work with Jessica and, and it's not being done. Like that's where we're at the cusp of people starting to teach social emotional learning every day. And then what does it look like for it to go on? And then what does it look like for it to vertically align? Like we were still like being stagnant by talking with kindergartners about identity and our ways of the blue bear, we call it our character traits in the same way we are talking about fifth graders and with fifth graders. And, and fifth, we get to fifth grade and the fifth graders be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Courage, compassion, tenacity. I, you know, know how to pick up my pencil and stay self-disciplined. Like they were like starting to kind of mock 
that because it wasn't deepening their learning. And so, you know, once we were able to say like, okay, well, what does identity look like and power and privilege um, from a very young age? And then when you're studying, it goes back to the expedition, when you're studying in fifth grade, like, like local politics around voting rights and the communities that have access to that or not, well, then you can really deeply embed in what, what does an alienation look like, right? What does um, that concept, how can you relate to it to times you felt alienated in your own life? And then how does privilege interact where you haven't felt that? How does um, lack of privilege interact with that? And so that's that complexity that, that if you're doing a good job and sometimes we do better than other times in that crew block, that it can go through, there's a through line through expedition and social emotional learning is not um, devoid and separated in any way from the academic content of a school. And that's like where I think we're going is like, how do we um, continue to align those curriculums where, where those, where, as you talked about, uh, Steve, that subjects are not separate in real life and a social emotional life is not separate from the academic life in the in the real world too so that brings us to jessica (laughs) and and um i mean i there's there's a moment i met jessica and then there's also the moment where i feel like i was bonded to her for life so there's like (laughs) there's two components i think and i wasn't there for the whole thing but we we started looking at trauma-informed care and we started kind of dabbling in it and i started attending some seminars and and seeing how like if you're going to do that well it's like it's a lot of years it's really transforming an organization and the way we were using trauma-informed care and Um, being trained in it very, very lightly. Our district only had the ability to do like a one, one time seminar on it and was, was really problematic. Right. So we didn't know enough to do it. And then I also started seeing some concerning things happen um, around bias and racism. So um, because we didn't know deeply even how to define trauma and all the different types of trauma, I would see uh, a staff member say like, oh, well, they have trauma because of the color of their skin or um, different assumptions we were making about students. And so, so Jessica came in to kind of push that thinking with the neurosequential model of education for a staff training. And it really, um, it just like sat with us differently, just like that one seminar. Um, and we knew from the get-go, like teachers, our teachers came to this program because they were, were pretty aligned in like wanting to see behavior as a journey. But it really gets stuck when like you have no action steps. Like philosophically, sure, we're aligned, but like teachers need something they can do now that's tangible, concrete, accessible. Um, and, and they need to do that so that they can also start having more buy-in to see like, oh, whoa, that worked. And I wonder if I ask this question and tweak it this way, if I can make this more successful. So we knew like we had to have a coaching component of this. And we were having some pretty overt big behaviors in our school. Um, Number one concern by teachers on every six to eight week survey was discipline in our school and behavior and how unsupported they felt. Um, Number one concern of parents was what that was looking like in our school. And we were definitely burnt out. And so she started a relationship with coaching us. And um, 
when I felt really bothered, I was engaged with a student who um, was having some very overt behaviors um, in, in, in through it. My wrist got slightly sprained through it. Um, Jessica came in, she had, she had just got to the school and ever, and I had everybody else leave the classroom, but I was in, in the classroom with the student and then Jessica joined me. Um, and I know these things, like I'm a parent of four kids. I'm a communications professor. Like I know like the power of our words and when to use them and not, but I also wasn't like really honing in on like what happens in our escalation states. And um, this situation felt really out of control. Yeah. And Jessica said, say one sentence, (laughs) not even a sentence. It was like three words. It was like, sit down over there. And I looked at her like she was insane. Like that's like, like I was like, that's it with this relationship. Like this person does not know what they're talking about when it gets to this level. There's no way I'm reaching this kid with this one command. Um, And, you know, it took about four minutes, I think four or five times saying it. I was very nervous because the student was putting... um, items in in their mouth and um, it was escalating quickly and, and it worked. (laughs) The bottom line is it worked. Um, We had quite a bit of work to do after that, but it, me stopping being so verbal and trying to access a part of this student's brain that was not accessible to that person at that time worked and allowed us to de-escalate the situation. And so that was my like, really like, okay, like this is, this is where we need to go. Um, and then, you know, Jessica pushed us on a ton of fronts, like first and foremost, that this, is, this can't be about one group of people in your school. Everybody needs to be trained and everybody needs to have buy-in. And it was such a miss for us for so many years. Our teaching assistants are usually the first to deal with behavior. And we were training them the least <laughs> uh, for, for five years. And so you, you look back on these moments and you're like, wow, we were stupid. <laughs> But like, you didn't know what you didn't know. And so, and, and once I started observing with Jessica, our teaching assistants, because they were trained the least, were the most verbal of any of our staff when they were trying to interact with students and and conflict. Um, And it was a constant power struggle that just was like a a co-escalation by both um, that wasn't amounting to two positive things. So the training was so key of all of our staff. And and then we did small group work with a smaller, um, we called it the safety group um, and and did a a group study, a book study, and then like a debrief of events because everyone is so unique that it can't just be a one-off, like, okay, this is going to work every time. And then I think um, this, this component of space came into play yeah. with Jessica and the physical space. And I think, you know, now that we, we talk about this today, it's like, oh, whoa, there's my dissertation that I wasn't even <laughs> focusing on before of how important physical space is. And Jessica started looking at our spaces and she'd say things like, well, of course, the student who elopes from your classroom every day is going to break every glass cute mason jar in the room if you put them in the back corner of the room so they can't leave when they need to leave. Um, 
And so, and then, and then just what was in our spaces and how they were organized and how much stuff was in the classroom, all for good reasons, right? We thought, okay, um, we're a school that isn't going to have manufactured posters on the wall and it's not going to look typical and we're going to get the natural environment in there. But the, the walls were cluttered with like all student work or um, scaffolding charts or, or different projects they were working on. And, and Jessica started really coaching each of our teachers of looking at those spaces, looking at where students were sitting, looking at what was on the wall, like what was the stimulation that was happening in those classrooms? And then what were the spaces that students could go to if they did need an escape that would offer a safe space potentially a more contained space. And also, you know, we're in the middle of the city, like we can't have students leaving the school, like it's, it's a busy street. So there was a lot of fear around our approach. And so we created with Jessica, this cloud room, we call it. And Mm -hmm. um, it's a space that can be used both for like breaks and for different sensory needs and for de-escalation. And I think our big miss this was a space that honestly had been destroyed like five different times before we created this room because we would unintentionally kind of use it to like um, as a space to try and calm a student down. Like we had holes in the wall, things written all over the wall, and we had seen it as a space that should have no structure and really like no environment because it was just going to be like ruined and destroyed. And Jessica like really helped us shift our thinking of being like, no, this is not a free for all space. This is a highly structured space Mm -hmm. that is intentional. And it's intentional around what we know through the neurosequential model of education happens during regulation and what a student needs during those those different regulation moments. And, um, and so we were able to create like a highly structured space with a toolkit that remained locked, you know, um, for for access for the the teacher to get um, with all the different tools that would aid in that, um, particularly the relate stage, the regulate stage, we have a swing, we have um, some heavy work that can be done in there. Um, and then, uh, And then when we get into that relate stage, what are some of the things that could co-regulate with the staff member and the student and, and, you know, and what would that look like? I mean, I, it's been so fascinating and obviously we're not, we're just now back in school building, but even the act, we have just those old code locks from, you know, from your lockers in high school in, on our tool space, even that act with a student offered such regulation, like them seeing that that structure and moving in that and I'll open the tools toolkit when you're sitting in one of the four colors, you choose the color, and then and then, you know, moving the code back and forth. And and you can kind of test as a staff member, just on what's happening during that time where the students at and picking one tool and putting one back like the structure of that has just been you know, life-changing for our school. Um, you know, do, just- do you guys, yeah, uh, I can ask this to both of you, but do you have a consistent or special person running that room or, or, or managing that room? And Yeah, um, we have, well, usually it's, it was me, but now we have um, um, 
a, a, a bigger mental health team. And part of what's happened is like through this work, I've, I really, we, we had, we had a one day a week psychologist when we started working with Jessica and in a public school setting, that psychologist was only able really to do a caseload for special education and paperwork. Like it, it was, it was no time at all. So we weren't even having a process in which we could really identify and meet student needs in any way. But what's happened is like, because we have such a clear vision and we have data to show it's working, we've been able to get, um, be more competitive in grants and state grants. And we have two full-time um, mental health professionals now. And so they'll maintain it, you know, refill different tools that need to be used. Um, we, we all get nervous that Jessica's going to come and see one thing out of place because she wants it in the same order at all times in the room. So clean it up, make sure it's organized. So yeah, so, so it's not, it's not everybody uses it. Um, and there's a, but there are, there is a couple of people who like make sure it's, it's maintained. Well, I think it it reminds, you know, you were just saying of like, historically, the folks that were dealing with most of the behaviors were the folks that were the least trained. Right. And so kind of embedding that into what you were trying to do with this, you know, the cloud room as an example of we also didn't want to, how do I want to say this? We didn't want to take away the teacher's capacity to also regulate their own students, right? We didn't want them then to create an environment, oh, well, now they're also always handing the kid off to the assistant that's supported in this classroom. And so with the cloud room and with this behavioral piece, it's like, well, no, we have, we have to have everyone in that system speak the same language so that if I'm teaching... I'm able to, I'm able to maybe take Steve to the cloud room and play for a little while. And Alicia can take over as the assistant in my class and really kind of, again, get rid of those silos and, and, and have this commonality of, of both of our roles. Um, yeah. And I think when you talk about like a system, like an adult system changing and a school system changing at the same time as like this approach is changing, like, I mean, what what I think happened in a lot of our culture is it was so directed, teachers were so directed as that's about this student. And then there was this shift to what's about me in this equation. And then what's about my classroom. So we're also not removing the teacher from what we call like tier one situation and particularly around physical space rituals and routines in our school and you know I failed to mention that earlier but like that was another huge interaction we had um, with Jessica and her training was you know what 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 does my classroom look like am I um, clearly articulating in the same consistent way as other classrooms our character and behavior traits am I um, adhering, do, do I know the why of how we walk in our school when we go down? Am I committed to um, common practices and everybody having ownership of, of talking to a student when they're in, in the school? Like there were so many pieces that we were saying was about this individual student or the teaching assistant and student relationship that was really about our common practices in the classroom and in all our common spaces. Um, that weren't structured. They didn't have, and and less about structure is more about they they didn't have intention and an articulated intention. 
And that's been my, even when you're talking, that's been my favorite thing about listening to you right now is just your overarching systematic shift from fear to intentionality, right? In all your stories, you can hear that of how fear used to be kind of that common thread, right? You said it like your through line as a system. And now your common through line as a system is intentionality, regardless of what it is. That's what, that's the driving force now. And that's very apparent in kind of what you're talking about, which is awesome. Yeah. And you know, as a, as like a leader of the school, like that's how I feel when I, it really shifted how I talk to parents. Like when I know, like when I move from like fear of what's happening or fear and worry of a a parent seeing an interaction with a student to like the intentionality of what this looks like. And this is what we're doing. It, it, it changed. And that's, that's really where I talk about, like when I could articulate the vision um, we were able to, to really, I think, you know, create a community that um, had buy-in or they didn't (laughs) with what was happening at the school. And this was the place for them to explore with us or not. Um, And that definitely changed with that fear to intentionality. Yeah. I I have a question. This can go for both of you too. Um, As Jessica has brought a a different lens or or at least an enhanced lens to the group. Um, And it seems like your social and emotional learning is becoming more organic all the time. It's just a part of everything. How does that translate into the expedition side of school where you're out in the community and has it translated to um, positive behaviors when you are taking some chances, taking the kids out and and kind of breaking down the walls in, in a sense and, and getting out in these thematic explorations that you're doing. How's that work? Yeah, you know, it, it has translated. I think, you know, when you're when your whole system's changing of thinking, there's this there's this, um, I started taking, I started watching a master class with an astrophysicist, you know, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And oh, yeah. I, I have no I, idea. He's what, one of my favorites. It's like, I should not be watching. I have like no math sense, no science sense. Like it, it panics <laughs> me to like go camping and lay out and look at the stars and understand how insignificant I am. Like I hate the whole, the whole thing. So it's a funny one for me to, um, to, to think about, but I've been resonating with this quote, like for the last year and a half when I took it is that, um, especially in education, and it's really tricky for me and like where I'm at a, a juncture of 10 years in at the school is like, is like, I, there's this moment where you want to keep learning and you want to know enough to think like, you know, <laughs> how to do it and that you're right. But then like, then there's this tipping point that you like, start to know too much that you know that you're all wrong. <laughs> And then it opens up like a whole new group of work. And that's really where I feel is like, as you learn, and and another thing he says is it's like not as important as training yourself of like what to know, but how you think. So once you like change how you think about behavior, um, it opens up like this giant universe of, of work and growth to be done, which can feel really overwhelming. But like, that's what you started to see, like with the work with Jessica and with saying, we're going to be responsive to this community, like that, that, that started with like adult 
adult culture had to change. Like, how are we taking care of ourselves? How are we regulating? What do we look like in encounters? And then what does our curriculum look like? And what does our expedition curriculum look like? Mm-hmm. And and how are they engaging in that? So that really like spearheaded that um, need for the social emotional learning curriculum to be to, to, to be able to explore it in complexity and in expedition um, that, you know, that if we are able to talk about like how we were feeling in these environments and then connecting it to going out in the city and saying like, you know, one of my favorites is, is we're really trying to work on being more asset-based and we have so much work to do in that area of when we talk about different communities. But, you know, one of our students was like, they had to carry, they were delivering supplies to um, people experiencing homelessness as part of our, our compassion project. And they had all these backpacks on their back with all the supplies in it. And one of the, one of the catch 22s we get into very easily is, is saviorism and like um, Mm -hmm. charity and like giving to community without learning about a community, without letting communities speak for themselves and without seeing different communities and the assets they bring. And I think that's, uh, that's work that our school needs to continue to do. But this one, I think he was in second grade at the time. He's like, wow, like carrying that backpack was so, so heavy. And it made me realize like how strong uh, a, a person experiencing homelessness is that they can do that work every day. And that's like, like, I always hold on to that quote. And because that's like where I want to go with this work is like, how do we also see all these like skills that are different than than what we see in a traditional academic setting that our students are bringing. And Jessica's really, I guess Jessica's really helped with that work too. Um, I think like we, the reason we do expedition and go out in the city and go into the venture because nine times out of 10, the person who's leading on a hike when we do five days in Moab, it's definitely usually not your mathematician in the classroom. So you get to see students geniuses in all different ways. And then by understanding students in a different way through the work with Jessica, we get to see those geniuses too. And like the skills that students are bringing for all sorts of reasons into navigating these education education spaces in ways that they're kind of being, you know, constrained to do. Yeah. So I guess, oh, Steve, did you want to go? Go ahead. Well, I I just want to slip that one question in because it keeps popping into my mind about your staff. And once the staff has seemingly as kind of has the buy-in of of understanding from the work that you and Jessica are doing with them, are they becoming more creative and um, just like the kids in a sense? Are, and then I, I was also curious about the makeup of your staff and um, kind of the level of diversity there. So just a couple questions around your staff, but I, I'm just wondering if they've gotten to that point of creating intervention ideas now that they have the, the foundation you guys have helped lead them to. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a, a major weakness in our school is the diversity of staff. So um, we are uh, are historically young white women, in, in, which is pretty typical of the education or the traditional public education um, area right now. But one of the things that became important, I mean, we started an after school program um, with, with, with younger teaching assistants and those that were still in school. And then they became teaching assistants in our school. And 
And we started having more mentors of color for our students who were establishing deep relationships with our students who weren't the lead teacher. Um, and that's why even that work became so important that Jessica says that everybody's trained because some of the deepest yeah. held relationships our students have are, are not necessarily with their lead teacher, but with a teaching assistant who also runs the after school program and can have a more um, playful relationship with them. And even taking some of them being like, how can you do that as a lead teacher as well? But yes, I think like we've seen the interventions get more creative um, also by consulting with Jessica, where she can really just like debrief, like she'll just observe a classroom for a half day, and then make time with the teacher to really talk through that, um, that relationship has led to changes and in interventions and, and, and an excitement and a momentum on a teacher that you need to mm-hmm. do this, um, without like a real rationality for it. But like, I know Jessica's seen this, but I've seen this a lot where a teacher will come like three days later and say, I took out four more bookshelves and you should see what I've been able to create in, in my space. And I, and I moved these here and um, just like that there's, you know, that the thinking changes and, and it's, and it, and it's not, it's not stale. Like it keeps growing. Like there isn't, you know, I think Jessica's encountered this a lot, but I think even with our staff, sometimes they'll be like, well, that didn't work, Jessica. And, and you know, that that's impossible. But then there's all these other ways to interact with the student and think through that situation and things we're missing um, about our students. So I've, I've definitely seen uh, that culture um, in our staff feel more enthusiastic uh, and motivated by the work of behavior um, and wanting to be part of that than in the past. Well, we were I mean, also doing yeah. stupid, we were also doing stupid things like no. <laughs> the one thing we haven't talked about is Jessica started like auditing our behavior plans, right? So when we had a student that was exhibiting um, not dissociated behaviors, and we need to talk about that too, because that's, that's also where we got to go as a school is like, how are we, how are we interacting with students that don't have these overt big behaviors? But when we had a student with a big overt behavior, like we were panicking and putting together some sort of like a safety behavior plan, not embedded in research and evidence around the neurosequential model of education and using like a piecemeal from all the different things we had seen in traditional education. So um, bad things like not paying attention to Maslow's hierarchy of needs and putting relationships with a, a sister in the school as a reward for doing something or... Um, um, food, right? That's a common one, like where we would be offering a reward, even though we were not like intrinsically reward based. And we knew that as a school. But then when we were, we were doing these like one off plans, we were doing that. And then also like transitioning students so quickly between different things like and that's where I don't know, 90% Jessica of our students are struggling <clears throat> is during those transition periods. And when we're asking them, um, to move from one, usually a preferred activity to a less preferred activity. Yeah. Well, I think, and this can be a lesson, I think, for anyone listening, right, of your your systems change, right, regardless of kind of the, the, the framework that anyone's embedding. There was this understanding that if, if, if we're going to truly understand and have students be accountable for behaviors, right, specifically, that 
the adults have to shift and be accountable for behaviors. So again, it's this parallel process, which tends to be missing. Um, So the thing that's coming up for me, right, is that we have a lot of folks listening to this podcast that are just in traditional public schools, right? And and while I think the expeditionary model is great, right? And it aligns in so many ways of kind of pushing the envelope. I also know that there's probably some folks doing expeditionary that aren't pushing the envelope at all, right? That it actually probably feels more traditional. What would you say to those listeners that are in traditional public schools in, in elements that they could embed and what they're doing and not have to be expeditionary? Like what, what would you say to those yeah. teachers? Yeah. I mean, I first like always want to be really real about the constraints in public education around behavior. And, you know, Jessica will say certain things and I'll give her such a face and I'll be like, are you kidding me with this? Um, It is such a face. I just also want to say that. Okay, (laughs) keep going. Sorry. Well, and that that push is important. So so I, I would say a it doesn't matter if you're in a traditional space and an expeditionary learning school. Um, if you are serving maybe over a hundred students, you become beholden to this master schedule in a way that's really, really hard to get away from. And like, I, that's probably my biggest angst when I talk with Jessica, she'll be like, well, let that student have this amount of math and then and then you know that they can't do this and then they have to move to that well this master schedule right drives the entire system in a public school and like you tweak this or you take away this person from this and then you are 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 mess like if you're using our recess space for this to really work through what a student needs then this class can't go to recess and so there there's a real struggle with the spatial and institutional organization of how we do school. And Jessica talks a ton about this in her work of like how we do school. I think that's why she's so interested in it and why I'm really interested in the like preschool toddler spaces because just regulation wise, you can't even work with more than I think eight kids at a time. And there's a lot more power in what you can do. And, and what we are learning more and more is that this kind of work has to be done so much earlier, right? Um, so much earlier than we're even doing it. But then what we're seeing in our teen populations, particularly in Colorado, like we have a very high suicide rate in high school. Yeah. We're seeing a lot well, we're, where we're not really reaching is, is, is our students who are dissociating a lot. Um, that's kind of the profile of who, who is taking their life right now and who's really struggling in Colorado in the teen years. And a lot of what we're trying to do now is say, like, how can we really engage in social, emotional learning journeys and advocacy for self in this, in this, in this younger space? So I think like, I, I, I just always want to recognize for, for listeners out there who are leaders and teachers in schools, like some of this often doesn't feel realistic, but we're all beholden to tier one practices. Like we all have a sense of rituals, routines, and the culture of our school. And, and I would argue that most educators are deeply, deeply, um, um, they deeply care about those things, like philosophically. Um, So across the board, I think those kind of things can be done. Like getting your staff on the same page of like what it looks like in your hallways and what kind of um, how you are not taking your 
your your school traits or your core values off the wall and how you're actually embedding them into your practices all day like those can be done in any type of school Um, and I think that's like you know that's transformative and then also especially now because we are seeing a a more of understanding of the deep need of social emotional learning like training a whole staff and not leaving out your custodial staff your front office staff and your teaching assistant staff you may not be able to pay for regular coaching and i get that like that's the argument i continue to make in public school grants is that that's what's needed but when you are doing those one-off trainings and i'm definitely very very partial to the neurosequential model of education because it allows you to do something right away that, that your whole staff should be trained. Yeah. The whole system. Yeah. Oh, you're awesome. Grainers or anything else that yeah. we, well, we want to discuss you know, before I, we start I, I wrapping just, up? You know, I'm a word, I'm a word guy and I, and I'd love something that, that you said just two words together that I think all, it, it, when I'm thinking about schools in general, and I taught in a regular, you know, mainstream public school, but you said we have to be able to be growing uncomfortable um, were the two words put together. And I, I, I didn't mean that when I, when I first heard it, I thought that, yeah, we're just getting more uncomfortable. But no, now I see it a little different in the way you explained it is we are growing uncomfortable because um, we're growing. It's a dynamic system that you've created that allows people to grow. But you have managed somehow to, and I think it's the both of you in, in this work, is allowing people to feel um, okay in that discomfort, in that dynamic system. And I think that's it's something we all have to uh, be realistic about is if we are going to make great changes that, and you already are, you, you do have to grow uncomfortable, but you, but you grow, that's the point of it. And I just thought you, you just, that was a nice twist of words that meant something to me. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's like, it's, it's awful a lot of times to feel that. Right. And, and to, and I think it's a little bit about like having to reflect on what you were doing once you see things differently too, and being like, Oh, those cringe, cringy moments as the fifth graders say, but there's a lot of empowerment in there too. Like there's a confidence that I definitely feel I establish in being uncomfortable. So those moments of inserting yourself in there or, or walking into the room and saying, Hey, like, we're gonna, we're gonna try, try and do this. Those are really uncomfortable moments. But then like the confidence and the empowerment that comes from that, I think, continues. It's it's the thing that gets you to keep going that route, right? And, and the outcomes, right? You're seeing like real student outcomes, our school, like the behavior, I mean, it, it's such a bummer. We had to, to, to close school March 13th last year because the discipline data had gone from like too high to almost non-existent on like the higher levels. We had no we had one suspension the whole year. Like the, these, these systems were really, and we need more years of that, but you were seeing true student outcomes um, and staff retention, we had 100% of our staff return that year. Oh, that's never amazing. Once, never once has that happened in this yeah, in our amazing. school, especially in a, a startup innovative school that um, is constantly changing and growing pains every year. But um, it would it, it would have been it, it was unfortunate that we couldn't see that through in the same way. Um, 
you know, because of the pandemic. Yeah. Oh, Alicia, I, again, thank you. I want to say for pitch hitting, is that the, is that the correct analogy? Pitch hitting, yeah. I mean, you know sports more than me. Uh, baseball, <laughs> baseball is one that I, baseball just, I'm really bored by baseball. Sorry for everyone that loves yeah. baseball. We cannot, we cannot thank you enough, Alicia. This is such an amazing conversation and um, you are on our list to get up and going right away. So I'm glad that this worked out and that you're able to share with everybody. I mean, you had, yeah, this was awesome. You visit, said so many things. I want to come visit Alicia's school. <laughs> <laughs>